Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, yet you let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. So everything I say, you can blame him for. Um, no, I'm not, actually. Uh, I was just tired of costing us all the one-star reviews on Google. So I thought I would uh, use a different name. And then they can blame someone else for being crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm Rob Steele. Uh, I'm part of the pastoral staff here, an associate priest uh, at Via Lethbridge. Uh, once again, if you're new here, we're so glad that you've come to worship with us this morning, and uh, I'm just so thankful you're here. Through the morning, I have been slowly losing my voice, so I made a joke a couple weeks ago about being, uh, sounding like a prepubescent boy, and I got royally made fun of by my son and all of his friends. <clears throat> so if you would all tell him I sounded very manly today, uh, I would appreciate that, but it's not going to be true. Uh, so I've had the privilege of preaching on this text before. Uh, I'm sure that everyone remembers everything that I said. It was about a year and a half ago. You probably remember every word. Uh, if you don't remember it at all, just know that it was amazing. Uh, we laughed. We cried. Lives were changed. Um, you know, all the things that happen every Sunday when uh, we preach here at Via Lethbridge. Um, but my time was focused on verses 14 through 16 last time. And as I came to the text again and did another reading, I thought, to be honest, I was going to preach basically the same message to you. I even made jokes about it with Amy going, I think it's going to be the same sermon. I don't really have anything else. And she went, that's okay. No one remembers anything you had to say anyways. <laughs> and, and you laugh, but we all know it's true. So, uh, so you can go back and check, but today is not going to be the same sermon. Uh, as I was praying into this text and as I was beginning to study it, verse 13 stood out to me in such a significant way that I actually wasn't able to even get beyond it. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to teach on the whole of the text, but I found verse 13 to be like a microcosm of everything that's being said in our passage. And so we're going to hit the same sort of themes, though I'm going to focus in just on that one, uh, one text. Uh, so let me just pray briefly before we jump in. Lord, would you let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Matthew today, and one of the main priorities in the Gospel of Matthew is that he wants us to know that Jesus is the continuation of the whole story of God and Israel as it was laid out in the Old Testament. Matthew is clear that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is the fulfillment of the teachers and prophets of the Old Testament, and that he is God with us. Matthew is so clear about that that you don't even get out of the first chapter before you know all of that about Jesus. He wants us to be clear about this continuation of the story of God and his people. So the Old Testament tells us that God revealed himself to the world, that he won for himself a people, and then he delivered to them a way of life that they were called to live out in the world. That's the story of God and Israel in the Old Testament, and that continues to be the story of Christ and his church moving forward. God's people are meant to live as humanity was always meant to. God's intention has always been that the world could know who he was by looking at us. So as we come to our text for today, it's important to remember that Jesus has come on the scene as the fulfillment of God's desire for humanity. He is the example of what it means to be truly human. And he is our salvation from all that would destroy us. So let's put up verse 13 today. As we begin reading the passage, just in this one verse, we can see that God actually makes an identity statement, but he goes on to say how we are meant to live as well. He addresses both in one verse, using a simple metaphor. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Hear that again. You are. That is supposed to make us pause for a second. It's an identity statement of all the followers of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. Think about that for a minute. One of the primary things that we seek for in our life is a definition of who we are, is to understand ourselves in some way. And this passage, this one verse, is actually giving us a definition of who you are. You are the salt of the earth. We have to stop and take note of this. So why is Jesus saying that we are salt? Well, the truth is that to the ancient world, salt was extremely valuable. So valuable, in fact, that the Greeks spoke of it as being divine. To Jesus and his followers, there was something about salt that made it otherworldly. This is really important when we consider this identity statement about us. You are salt means that this culture that's, that's hearing this from Jesus knows that Jesus is saying you are otherworldly. You are beyond comprehension in this place. But that isn't all that he says. He goes on to say that you could lose your saltiness. And if it does, if you do... I'm sorry, but it's, it's a worthless life. And should be thrown out. These are hard words. But we can't lower what he's saying. We can't take away from it. 
These two statements have a stark contrast for us that we're supposed to hold in tandem. You are salt, otherworldly, beyond comprehension, and you can lose it. You can not be that. The truth is that to the ancient world, they actually didn't think salt could necessarily stop being itself. Because they thought of it as divine, they thought of it as something that would just always be. It would always do all the things that it does. It would always be as it is forever. In some ways, Jesus is kind of saying, if you're not like salt, you probably never were. Not maybe salt as it seems that you are. Jesus is saying to his followers that their identity is not of this world. Remember that. Hold on to that. Don't let go of that because of the harshness of the next part. Hold them both in tandem. You are beyond comprehension for this world. But what you do in this world matters and you will be known by it. You expose yourself through how you act. He's giving value to every person that follows him, but he reveals to us that it's not separate from our actions, nor do our actions earn that value. Instead, we are revealed who we truly are by how we act on the earth. Jesus wants us to keep together who we are and how we act. They're inseparable. You can't make one without the other. So then how does salt act? If this is the metaphor Jesus wants us to, to uh, understand ourselves through, we have to understand what its qualities are. I'm not going to be scientific about this. Some of these are going to seem really plain, but I'm going to go to the context and to the culture and say, what did they know and how did they think? If they thought it was divine, then what qualities would make, them see, would make it seem divine? The first of those qualities of the three special qualities of salt that the ancient world thought made it salt, is that it was connected to purity. There's no doubt that the bright white color was part of that for them, but it actually goes far beyond that. The Romans used to say that salt was the purest of all things. Because it was viewed this way, it was used as the most foundational offering in sacrifice unto gods. They knew that if salt was present in their sacrifice, that it was a good sacrifice, that it was pure. So Jesus is expressing the purity of his followers in their identity. Those who are followers of Christ, who listen and abide by his teaching, are pure. But remember the warning attached. That if we don't act pure, if we don't follow through on those things, it reveals who we truly are on the inside. That maybe our source isn't what we think it is or what we would want people to think it is. In our world today, this is a harsh message and it's not supposed to be harsh. That's the problem. The silence in this room, you can tell. It's a difficult one. When you stand up here and there's no like even murmuring, you can tell. Either nobody wants to hear what you have to say, which is possible, 
or they don't want to hear what you have to say because, oh, this is not an easy word. But it's because there's actually a lie that has penetrated the walls of the church in our culture. That lie is that purity is what we make it. That there's no clear standard set by Jesus that we have to uphold. We've been convinced that we can decide for ourselves what is good and right and pure. The lie often takes some form of holy sound and you say it in some way like this. Jesus really cares about my heart. He doesn't really care about those actions. Maybe you wouldn't say it quite like that, quite so obvious. But if you spend any time in the community, in the community of the church, you realize that we often live this way. We've lowered the standard of purity, purity that is required of us because it's too hard, or because Jesus wants us to be happy, or because God has our best interest in mind. But when we use those sorts of statements as a way of justifying our behavior, it shows that we've forgotten the entire narrative of the scriptures. The narrative that we talked about only a moment ago, that from the beginning of time all the way through to the end, God has won a people for himself and he expects them and calls them to act like they are his. To act in any other way is to allow corruption into your life that will only bring death. What we're missing is that Jesus is telling us that purity is our identity and that there is a way of living in the world that would make us not of the world. That he has a way for us that is to make sure that we don't become salt that has lost its taste. Jesus wants the best for us, and it's because of that truth that he calls us out of the lies that the world is feeding us day after day after day after day. You are being bombarded with these lies, whether you know it or not. It doesn't take long to find clear and concise lists of impure ways of life in the scriptures. Of course, there is the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but there's also lists in the New Testament. Paul gives one in 1 Corinthians, he gives another in Galatians, he gives another in Ephesians, and I'm just going to list a few, because truthfully, we got to hear them. Drunkenness. Guys, please hear that. Getting drunk is not actually the way of a follower of Jesus. Adultery. Idolatry. Having anything before God. Selfish ambition. That's something that would wreak havoc on a culture of social fame, of rich, quick schemes, of uh, a need for notoriety so everybody would know who I am. Yeah, selfish ambition is actually listed as a way that isn't good for a person that follows Jesus. Rage, envy, murder. I that one, I feel like, not because I'm a murderer, but that one hurts because 
he puts it in the list with everything else. We like to think of that as something over here, and he puts it in the same list as greed. He puts it in the same list as coarse joking and foolish talk. These are the things that the scriptures tell us are not to be our way. All of these things are impure for a follower of Jesus. <clears throat> All of these things are ways of life that will only lead to death. But Jesus has a better way. Jesus has a way of life that's for us all. It's narrow. It's hard to stay on at times. But it's worth the fight because everything you need, everything you want, and life beyond what you can imagine will be found there. Jesus is saying you are pure, so live purely. Now, what I loved as I studied this text and this verse is that Jesus doesn't just use the salt metaphor to talk to that one group of people. He actually continues on because the second quality that the ancient church um, <clears throat> attributed to salt was its primary preservative. Now, I get that we all get that, that it's a preservative of sorts, but the ancient church, the way that they understood salt is really interesting because they didn't just talk about it as preserving, like we do in food. They talked about, it having, talked about it as having the ability to stop corruption. That it held decay at bay. Now think about that. When Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, so if the last quality was meant to speak to those who have been drawn into the world and lowered the standards of purity for a Christian, this quality is speaking to those of us that are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Those of us that definitely don't want to become of the world, so we keep ourselves from even interacting with the world. This quality of salt speaks to the fact that someone takes the salt into their hand and places it in a dead and decaying thing in order to stop the decay for as long as possible. This is what God does with us in the world. He takes us and places us into the world where there is no life in order that it would not decay too quickly. We are here to give opportunity to those who are dying. We are here to slow down the corruption and destruction in people's lives. This means that we must allow the hand of God to place us in these dark and dead places, the places that feel gross and corrupt. We must allow ourselves to be there so that we can hold back the death. Just as there was a lie that had penetrated the walls of the church around purity, so too is there a lie that has penetrated the walls of the church around how you will be corrupted by the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the living, breathing matter that God will take into his mighty hand and place it into the earth for the sake of holding back death and decay. Praise God. So how? How do we hold back the decay? That sounds nice, but how do we do that? Well, Jesus is using a metaphor. Let's stay with the metaphor. Let's follow him through this. 
If salt is our analogy, then it's simple. You must be who God has created you to be. Salt doesn't need to do anything extra to keep a carcass from decaying. It only has to be salt. If it has a mind and a will, and it was trying to do something more or to do something different in order to help fight the decay, it would fail and death would take over. Instead, God is telling us that all we need to be is our pure selves in the world. The people that God has made us to be. Not our fleshly desires, but our true selves. Remember Paul's words in Romans 6. We put verse 6 up first. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jump to verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Living apart from sin is to live purely. This is how you live as yourself. Live a pure life in the world, in the darkest places, and you will hold back the decay and death of the world around you. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Be in the world, meaning be in the places of death, but not of the world, meaning be pure. Jesus is giving us our identity and a way of life in these simple words. But it doesn't stop there. There's one more quality that's meant to be present when salt is applied. In the ancient world, salt was the primary and most prominent seasoning in all food preparation. Whenever salt was used, it was used to add flavor. The last two qualities were to bring challenge to two different types of people but this one actually is meant to speak to us all. We are called to add enjoyment to everyone we're in community with. Jesus believes and teaches us here that without Christianity, life is bland and unenjoyable. Living in community with a Christian is meant to be joyous, it's meant to be exciting, it's meant to be hopeful, and it's meant to be fun. This is not something Christians have been very good at. This is the most convicting thing in this entire study for me, because I'm lame, and I'm boring. I am the guy that this is speaking to. I'm like, oh no, how do I be fun? Teach me, teach me to be fun, which that tells you, I'm not fun. <clears throat> we often see the world as something to fight and war against, and so our life is very serious. Or we believe that life can only be enjoyable if we just dip our feet into the waters of the world a little bit, as if rebellious activity is good for the heart. Guys, I've heard you say it. We kind of snicker. We've said it. 
Ah, it's okay. It's good for you to do a little bit of that. It's not. It's really not. There is joy and goodness and excitement in the world that is on offer only for those who know Jesus. This quality isn't talking about sinful pleasures. This is about the fact that there is goodness in the world that is on offer to us because our good God created the world for us to live in. Christians are meant to experience depths of joy that the world does not understand. We're meant to be those who are peaceful in a room of warriors. We're meant to be those who are joyful in a room of sorrow. We are meant to be those who are full of hope when we see the sun rise. Because it's the dawn of a new day that God has given to us. We are meant to see the wind shake the trees and be filled with thanksgiving because God has given us air to breathe. We're meant to eat and rejoice. We're meant to drink and be merry, to know love and to know true community. That is the life that is meant and waiting for everyone that is a follower of Jesus. This life was a gift from God, and we are meant to live like it was a gift. So these three qualities of salt are the qualities that Jesus has given to every one of his followers in salvation. You are pure, and you cannot be yourself if you lower the call to a pure life. The purity that the Lord has called you to is not simple, it won't be easy at times, but it is fulfilling. It is where true life can be manifest in you, and it's where true life will be manifested through you, because you cannot be yourself without being in the decaying world. You were not meant to be held up in these walls. You are not meant to be stuck inside of a Christian bubble, scared of what the world will do to you. You are meant to be out there with the lost and the lonely, with the broken and the dying, and you are meant to stand as yourself, pure and holy, one with God, stopping the decay of the world from consuming your neighbors. This is who God made you. This is who you are. You are meant to live life to the full. You are meant to see the beauty and joy in everything around you. You are meant to lead others into enjoyment and excitement of life because you know it for yourself so clearly. Now, as we close, some of you might be thinking that sounds good, some of it, some of it sounds terrible. But that hasn't been my reality. So what am I supposed to do now? The answer is actually really simple. And it's what we do next. We repent. We receive. And then we go and live. Repent of all the ways you've not lived as you were called. Receive Christ's forgiveness. And receive his life through his body and blood at the table and then leave this place and live full of the life of Christ. Enjoy this world. Enjoy every breath. 
enjoy one another, and live in every way for his glory. Amen.